This episode is brought to you by Evermill. Evermill makes the world's most elegant spice rack that features text-to-refill organic spices in compostable packets, as well as a suite of kitchen products that help you cook so you can focus on sharing meals with the ones you love. This episode is brought to you by Equipped. Equipped is a modern luxury fitness brand that creates stylish, compact, portable, and versatile fitness equipment that will inspire you to move anytime, anywhere, whether you have half a minute or half an hour. Stay tuned for some special offers from our amazing sponsors exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. This is episode 153, and today I sat down with Ming Zhao, the co-founder and CEO of Proven Skincare. Founded in 2017, Proven is revolutionizing the one-size-fits-all skincare industry by creating personalized skincare products, leveraging their proprietary AI technology, and evaluating your individual skincare needs and concerns. Ming shares her inspiring story from moving from China to Fort Lauderdale, Florida at 12 years old to attending Harvard University and starting her career in consulting at the Boston Consulting Group to working in private equity at Bain Capital to launching Proven Skincare after an appointment with a celebrity dermatologist. We talk about her experience on Shark Tank, why she chose to delay her pitch at Y Combinator's Demo Day, and how she decided that working in private equity wasn't for her. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe, leave us an awesome review, and check us out on stairwaytoceo.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Hi, Ming. Thanks so much for joining the show today. How are you doing? Great, Lee. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for taking the time to learn more about our story. Absolutely. I'm excited to hear how you built Proven Skincare. You have an incredible story, and I'm excited to hear you share it on the show with our audience. Let's start, I guess, from the beginning. Where are you from originally? Tell us about you know where you're from, what your childhood was like, your parents, if you had any siblings. What was it like? Yeah. So I'm actually an immigrant. I'm also a third generation entrepreneur. Cool. I'm also a mother who started my business when I was pregnant with my daughter. So I have two babies. They're the same age, but very different in nature. <laughs> one business, one daughter. So yeah, so I was an immigrant, first generation in that when I was 12 years old, my parents and I immigrated from China to America. And none of us spoke any English. And we also didn't know much about America. So when we moved from northeastern China, so Manchuria area, it's on the so the northern border of China, close to the borders of North Korea and Russia. So very cold, very rustic climate and atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And when we moved to America, we actually moved to South Florida. Oh, wow. uh, the tip of South Florida to Fort Lauderdale. So, you know, that belies the fact that my parents didn't know much about the country or, you know, knew how to do any research at that time. I know. How um, did they even choose that? How did they choose Fort Lauderdale of all places? The U.S. is really big, you know, like how and right. why did they choose Fort Lauderdale? You know, I don't think they chose it. I think at the time, you know, they had an immigration lawyer who actually happened to be based in South Florida. So, you know, the easiest thing for that person to do was to move us to South Florida. And I think that's what happened. You know, little did they know there were basically at that time, no Chinese immigrants to the South Florida area. So even, you know, we we're a family that didn't speak any English. And most of the immigrants in the area are Spanish speaking, Haitian speaking. Yeah. So we really, you know, for many, in many ways, we're like fish out of water in the U.S. But my father 
was an entrepreneur in China. In fact, he was among the first generation of entrepreneurs when China allowed for entrepreneurship. Because, you know, if you know Chinese history, recently it was there was a planned economy for a long time, and entrepreneurship wasn't allowed. And then with Deng Xiaoping, they opened up the economy for entrepreneurship. So that was in the 90s, and my dad became he abandoned his iron rice bowl role and became an entrepreneur to the sort of shock and amazement of many people because you know at that time when you have a job where there's no way for you to ever lose that job you're sort of secured job Mm -hmm. security for life you know to have a job like that and then to abandon that for something very unproven very risky that was unthinkable for a lot of people but he you know he was adamant that that's what he wanted to do and then he eventually what was his company you know, he actually was teaching people in China when computers were, you know, first became a thing, how to type because the Chinese language, you know, still Chinese computers are also built with a QWERTY keyboard. So how do you type in Chinese with English letters? So that there's a whole thing of, you know, figure out how to type. So it's a very beginning computer lessons, basically. So starting with how to type and then other ways of using computers. So basically a computer school in China, first iteration of computer skills school in China. And he did well for that with his business. And then he decided to expand that into the U.S. But, you know, expand is really not the right way to think about it, because, you know, what would a business that teaches Chinese people to type and to use computers? He really, you know, knew that America was a place where for his progeny, you know, for his family, where, you know, I can get a tremendous education, where, you know, everyone's progeny, we can live in a land of of dreams and live the American dream. And that was the true reason why he immigrated us to the country. And that was back in 1996. Isn't that wild? That's like such an incredible story and such a huge leap of faith. I mean, had they even been to the States before that? Like, have they, did they ever travel here and and say, okay, this feels good. I think I want to make this move. I feel like they didn't, right? Was this like your first big move. And all of a sudden here he is. And he probably didn't even know if he could continue that path of building out that computer skills school, you know, within the U.S. It's a huge risk. Yeah, it's a huge leap of faith. You know, in fact, even as an entrepreneur now, you know, thinking about what he went through compared to what I'm going through in America. Sure, like there's a lot of difficulties and we'll I'm sure we'll get into them. Yeah. But the amount of sort of you know, chutzpah it took for him to do this when he knew he did not know the language, when he knew he did yeah. not know the country at all. In fact, not only had we never visited America, we had never left China. We had never left the country at all. You know, he was in wow. his 40s. Up until then, there really wasn't international travel. I don't even know if it was allowed, you know, for most of his life to even travel internationally. So wow. it was a complete blind jump. And especially for yeah. somebody who had a very comfortable life, you know, he built his business. It was, you know, showing signs of success. He, my mom, both, you know, they were living a very comfortable life in China that that could have just sustained themselves, you know, with their friends and, you know, above average social situation, et cetera. But they chose to do this. So I'm very grateful for them for having that faith and for having that long-term vision of what they wanted their lives and, you know, my life and the life of their progeny to have. Absolutely. It's so crazy. I have so much admiration for the people that can make that type of leap. I mean, I think back, I have ancestors that came over on the Mayflower and it's like those people back in the day got on a boat and had no clue where they could end up. (laughs) Right. The amount of risk. We stand on the shoulders of giants. Yes. Yes. And then you're basically like you're risking your life. It's just so fascinating, that kind of breed of personality that's willing to take that type of risk like your father did. And it's just so interesting and how inspiring, you know, that is and must have been (laughs) as a kid. And so what was it like, you know, growing up here, you are in Fort Lauderdale, you guys had never left China before you're in the US for the first time. What was it like growing up? You're around, you said 12 years old then? That's right. I was around 12. I didn't speak English. Yeah. You know, thankfully in South Florida, there was a robust system for new immigrants because there's so many new immigrants from you know the likes of Cuba and Haiti and Puerto Rico and you know Latin America. So when I came here, I was in you know seventh or eighth grade and there was ESOLs, English as a second language classes built in into the schools for new immigrants. 
And so all of my classmates and friends in school, you know, were from Latin American countries. And in fact, I learned Spanish first before learning English because I was just hanging out with Spanish kids all day. And yeah, so, you know, the system was we do stand on the shoulders of giants because the system was set up in a way where, you know, the schools were trying to do as much as possible to allow immigrant kids to have a chance at assimilating, you know, to have a chance at not just being like, you know, our parents, unfortunately, are not in that situation, right? Because my parents, in fact, nowadays, like this is, you know, 20 years later, they still don't speak English because they don't, you know, they don't have those opportunities to mainstream, etc. And I didn't take that opportunity for granted. You know, some of these teachers, they care, especially the ESOL teachers, they care so much Mm. that we could be everything that we could be, you know, that, that we could carry on the torch that, you know, all of our parents as immigrants, all the hopes that they had for us. So they really pushed us hard. And I also didn't take that for granted. So I actually mainstreamed very quickly into from, I think, you know, starting from eighth grade into the regular non-ESOL curriculum. You know, I, I learned English pretty quickly. So came to the country when I was 12, didn't speak English. And then four years later, I got a perfect score on my SAT verbal and then got, you know, scholarship to go to college and then went on to go to Harvard Business School. So that journey, I think, definitely takes on a lot of this, you know, immigrant grit, as well as I think the entrepreneurial DNA that's in me to take whatever opportunity we get and then go full on for it. Wow. And I can't imagine your father's face when you graduated Harvard. Oh, my God. You know, (laughs) what a massive accomplishment. And, and, you know, he took such a risk and to see that happen. I mean, hopefully he is, he saw that happen. That's such a huge accomplishment. And I mean, also a lot of pressure though, right? As a kid, I'm just imagining here you are. It's kind of like, Hey, we uprooted our entire life and took this massive risk and here you go. Better not F it up. You know? (laughs) Right. It's true. It's a lot of pressure. It's true. You know, it's funny, like as an individual, as a person, you know, not just as an immigrant, but just as who I am, mm-hmm. I don't know if I would have sort of had these, I guess we can call them accomplishments happen if I were in China than in the States. In fact, as a student in China, I wasn't a good student. I was always the one that had to have my sort of hand raised above my head in punishment because I couldn't keep my hand still. And I was also called the person who had too many independent ideas that were not in line with, you know, whatever we were supposed to be doing at the time. So I think even as a natural inclination of a person, having a lot of independent thinking, individualism, it was already well alive within me. So I think my parents chose the right path in terms of moving to America because they enabled an environment that allows somebody like me to thrive. So I think it's, it's a combination of a couple of things. Yeah, that makes sense. Right. And I think with your dad being an entrepreneur, he was probably like, I've got, you know, this awesome daughter who is definitely like me. We need to be in the land of entrepreneurship. Let's see what we can do over there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. And, and so- you know, before my dad, in fact, my grandpa has another wild story. So he and his six younger siblings were orphans and they were bequeathed like a small plot of land. A farmland. When he was 19 years old, there was a famine all around China, including on his farmland. So he could no longer at that time feed himself and his six younger siblings that he was raising. So he walked 2000 kilometers by himself with like a bunch of bread that he packed into a pack and did some work living as he walked 2000 kilometers and made it to a new city. And then open up a small bakery cart that was selling these crepes that were the crepes that he used to make for his siblings in his hometown. And he used that bakery cart as his main mold of living and sent most of his money home to his younger siblings for 12 years before he even established his own family in this new city. Wow. That's crazy. So yeah, you definitely have uh, some serious hustle in your blood. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's why I say I'm a third generation entrepreneur and I get to do it in America, which is wonderful. Amazing. And so, you know, you went to Harvard. Tell us about what it was like at Harvard and maybe some of the first jobs that you had and your kind of your career path. Yeah. As a young immigrant, you know, despite, you know, studying hard, despite 
knowing that I could work hard and achieve things, I was still quite shy because, you know, it's hard to move to a new country that you know nothing about and your parents also know nothing about and nobody can help you or support you in any way. You have no support system, yeah. no, you know, built-in friends, no family, nobody mm-hmm. in a new country when you're in your, you know, just beginning to be a teen, right? If you did that, mm-hmm. maybe when you were a younger kid, it wouldn't have as much of an impact. But for a teen, like in your formative years, I think I definitely became, you know, a pretty shy child or, you know, teenager, certainly probably an awkward teenager most of that time. And I think what actually Harvard Business School allowed me to do is actually help me blossom in the sense that, yes, I was achieving, you know, I was after college, I got great jobs, you know, including in management consulting and private equity investing, which is actually what inspired me to start my company. But, you know, in Harvard at the business school, they teach in a method that is like a Socratic method whereby, you know, it's no longer just wrote sort of reading the book and then reciting what you read. It's more we discuss, we talk, we synthesize, you know, we bounce ideas off of each other. And that kind of a process allowed me to understand that, you know, the secret thoughts that I have about the world, about businesses, about how people operate, maybe are not so I shouldn't be so shy about them. You know, maybe they're not as bad as I thought that they were. And I shouldn't necessarily keep it to myself. Or even if it's something that nobody has thought about, right? And in fact, I did earn a moniker. People, my classmates at school called me Planet Ming because I had a lot Mm -hmm. of ideas that were a little bit different and out there than, than most people. But it was still received, those ideas were still received in a receptive way. Mm-hmm. And I think that process helped me to understand that, you know, my voice is not so strange and I could speak my voice. And I think that that schooling, the biggest thing I got out of that is actually finding and valuing my voice. It sounds like you were able to build some confidence too in yes. that experience. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's awesome. And so I'm sure you have built that voice and confidence over time. I think that happens also naturally in the workforce. Talk Mm. to us about, you know, you were at the Boston Consulting Group for a little bit, you were at Bain Capital, you're even at a hedge fund. (laughs) So I'd love (laughs) to hear your background here and some of the things that you learned along the way in those experiences. Yes. So, you know, in college, when I had to decide on a major, you know, as somebody who came from a line of business people, right? I was like, I want to do business. Yeah. But I don't know exactly what type of business to do. And I didn't at that time have an idea that I would be an entrepreneur because my dad was and my grandpa was like, that wasn't something that I, those lines sort of, you see those later, but at that time as a young, you know, college kid, you don't think about it in such a critically thought about way. So I was like, I'll do business. And it seems like this consulting track, which people talk a lot about, gives one a wide introduction to different businesses, right? You get to, you basically are sent into different businesses to try to diagnose problems, to try to solve their issues, to try to do their job better than the business themselves can, which is a very strange idea to have a business where it's that you're saying, oh, every time you know you have a problem, we can come in and do it better. Now that I have a business, I think it's a very strange idea. But at that time, you know, that was the industry. Yeah. But, you know, it did expose me to a lot of different businesses and geographies. I even got to work in India for a few months and, you know, just seeing the pure enthusiasm and excitement of, you know, the Indian people towards their economy and the amount of optimism that they have that, you know, in 20 years, we're going to overtake China and then, you know, America, et cetera. Like it was very infectious. And I think as a young person, it's really good to see all of these different views and approaches to living and to working. So I, right. I appreciate that, that opportunity. And then after BCG, I was actually recruited by somebody who used to work at BCG to a private equity investment company. And, you know, I joined that because private equity at the time, so I, w- I would be joining the Hong Kong office. So I think some some of the travel that I had, and in fact, I uh, majored when I was in college, I majored in finance and German. And German because I loved the professors that I had at Emory, Emory's German faculty. They were just these very earnest, very down-to-earth people who just loved pedagogy, loved language pedagogy, loved German, and just really hit it off with these people. 
And then I got to intern in a Austrian company because of that before I started my job at BCG, which in the Austrian countryside, which in hindsight, you know, I was thinking that I would be improving my German, but the Austrian countryside didn't really speak German. They spoke, you know, country German. So I, my German yeah. didn't improve. But it certainly was an interesting experience. And then I got to work in India with BCG. So I think those experiences really ignited in me this like wonderlust for the world and for seeing the world while working. So mm -hmm. I then went to work in private equity in Hong Kong. At the time, this is in 2008, private equity as an industry was just starting in Hong Kong, which is so bizarre, right? Because now it's whatever trillion dollars in size. Right. And not even that long ago, in 2008, it was just beginning. Like so the biggest firms were just starting there. So that was exciting that I knew I would have the opportunity to be sort of on the forefront of industry taking shape and then quickly taking hold in somewhere new. So I started in a Boston office, which is their, the headquarters, and then moved into the Hong Kong office. But I had a couple of pretty immediate rude awakenings pretty quickly in this job. So I remember, you know, one of the roles of a private equity investor, even a junior person, is that, you know, we look for, select and evaluate companies to then buy or to buy a portion of and then, you know, try to improve the value of that company and then to sell it for a nice profit. So that's mm -hmm. that's the business model of private equity. So in yeah. one of the meetings where I was evaluating a company together with many of the seniors, right? So I would be the most junior person in that team. We were all asking the company, so the company leadership was there, the senior members of the private equity company I was working at was there. I was there. And people ask questions, I ask questions, other people ask questions. And then at the end of this meeting, one of the, the mid-level management people from my company pulled me aside and said, hey, Ming, next time you have to wait for all of the senior people to finish asking their questions before you ask your question. What? I was like, whoa, we are... <laughs> I was like, wow, we are not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> Politics, all right. Um, that's right. I didn't know if it was, I was junior, I was female. Female and junior, unclear exactly which one it was, but yeah, it was a very different lifestyle and working style. And also this role in high finance requires a all-encompassing, engrossing work style, which means that you're there as much as you can. You know, it's like 14-hour days, nights right. and weekends. That's just the pace of this job. So I remember one day I was called back into the office on a Sunday after having worked a very long week already. Mm -hmm. And I was really upset to have been called back in. So I go in from the back door, which is what all the junior folks use. And I just slammed it so hard. And then like five little heads pop out from their offices. Like all the juniors had already been there. I was the last person to be called in. And I was like, oh, whoops, sorry. I thought I was the only one, but no, everybody is here. That was the life. And I remember, I think what, finally sort of was a wake-up call for me that this is not the life for me other than you know not being very fit for a job like that that's you know highly hierarchical that a lot of the way of thinking was already done right nobody's asking for your innovation your novice idea in any way our senior leader who was already very accomplished by that point even before joining this company had had a facial paralysis disease that was spurred on purely by stress. And this is the second time that he had it where his face was basically paralyzed. He couldn't move it at all. Mm. And then we were having a party at his house when he had this disease. And then his daughter runs up to him and says, daddy, daddy, I hadn't seen you in so long. I miss you so much. And I was like, oh no, this is not the life I want. You know, I, it doesn't matter Aww. if this is very well paid, but this is not what I want. Yeah. But this role is what actually spurred me to become an entrepreneur because it gave me the pain point that I sort of needed in order to think about what I really want to devote my time to. So it sounds like you had these incredible pain points throughout your experience at, you know, Bain and you're realizing this life is not, you know, the life I want to be living. And you had a father who's an entrepreneur and you're like, this maybe is what I want to do instead. How did you come up with the idea for Proven? Where were you? What was your idea? How did you kind of make that transition from corporate life into entrepreneurship? 
Yeah. In fact, it was in my job as a private equity investor that inspired me to, to start Proven. So after a couple of years of having worked 14-hour days, nights, and weekends in this grueling job, one day I woke up, saw myself in a mirror, and didn't recognize the person looking back at me because I was looking so gaunt and withered and just much older than my age. You know, I was in my late 20s at the time, but I certainly didn't look it. And I just completely panicked. It scared me how much of my youth I had lost in this job. You know, I lost both my youth and my soul through this job of a couple of years. So I went on this journey to try to regain both my soul and my youth. And after traveling by myself for a couple of months around the world, I regained my soul and I found that it was actually harder to regain my youth than it was my soul because I was buying all kinds of expensive skincare products that were promising miracles, trying one after another, and nothing really did anything to help my skin. And it wasn't until sometime later that I found a specialist and waited on her wait list for uh, eight months to before I could see her. And then she had a process whereby she first examines people's skin, understand their skin and their lives and what they're dealing with, what their skin is dealing with, what the goals are, so sort of a diagnosis and evaluation. And then based on that, provided her clients with personalized compounded products. I remember those products, she made them in her office. They smelled really bad and they would expire in about two weeks. So she would give them to you these little vials, these like little blue vials, glass vials, and you have to like put them in the fridge and be very, very careful with them. But this personalized approach was the first time that I actually saw a difference on my skin and my skin and my overall skin health really responded to it. But the issue was I was spending thousands of dollars every time I see her and, you know, every time we, I get this process. But I wanted to make this experience and this level of results of personalized care available to everybody. And that's why I started Proven Skincare. In fact, I went to the smartest person, my, my smartest friend that I had at that time. Her name is Dr. Amy Yuan. She is a computational physicist from Stanford. And, you know, in discussing our approach, we realized that, you know, what the specialist was doing in evaluating skin and understanding skin and then creating products that were just right for that person, we could actually scale that process and use scientific data, use all the research that is available, use all the knowledge that's already out there to replicate that process, scale that process, and also make those personalized products available at a much more approachable level for everyone. So everyone right. can have that level of experience and results. And so what happened to the woman that you went to that did that first examination and evaluating your skin? Did you kind of approach her and say, this is what I want to do? Or you did you ask, like, how come you're not doing it that way or this way? Or was it kind of just a one-off experience? You're like, I've got all these ideas how I would make this different. Or did you keep her involved? Yeah. So, you know, she was a very established service provider to almost exclusively Hollywood celebrity clientele. In fact, mm. the reason that she saw me was that one day I think she decided that many of her Hollywood celebrity clientele were just too emotional. She needed some normal people in her client list. So that's not everybody is all emotional all the time because, you know, artists. So I was able to squeeze in as a, one of the normies that she was like finally willing to see. So, you know, I did discuss how we could scale this with her, but, you know, she's at that point already very established, which was also sort of later on in her career where she, you know, I don't think she was interested in starting something new. So, yeah, so we, at that time, we certainly wanted to learn more from her. And I think, you know, learned a lot from her just through having seen her. I probably worked with her for a couple of years and really appreciate learning sort of these, the central insight to prove it, which is to basically understand the person and then give them something that works for them. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. 
When was the last time you looked in your spice drawer? If you're like me, you probably have to look at it every time you cook, which is a lot. And it looks like a complete disaster. Different size seasonings, different brands, it's a mess and totally uninspiring. That's until I discovered Evermill, the most beautiful and inspiring spice rack I've ever seen. And it looks gorgeous both on your countertop for everyone to see and compliment, or it looks great in your spice drawer too. Not to mention, they send you refills in compostable packets that you can get delivered straight to your door simply by sending a text message. So if you're looking for an amazing gift idea, you have to check it out. They also just released two new products, a white marble salt well and an aluminum pepper mill perfect for the person who you think has everything. You can get 15% off by using the promo code stairway15 on evermill.com. That's 15% off site-wide for the first time ever using the code stairway15 at evermill.com. Do you struggle to find time to go to the gym or even just work out at home somehow? What about the ugly weights you're probably hiding in your closet or under your bed? Out of sight, out of mind. Am I right? Meet Equipped, a female-founded luxury fitness brand with a no-pressure approach to movement that creates gorgeous weights that look so good, you can place their U-shaped weight called the U-bar on your coffee table and your friends will probably think it's a new art piece. Or if you're on the go, just throw on their U-wrap super stylish vegan leather ankle weights so that you can get a little workout in while running your errands in style. Featured in everything from Vogue to the Financial Times, Equipped makes it easier to move through life. And if you're looking for a great gift idea this holiday season, you can get 20% off on EquippedMovement.com using the promo code STAIRWAY20. That's 20% off luxury fitness equipment using the code STAIRWAY20 on EquippedMovement.com. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. And I did the quiz. I'm, I think my product arrives like today. I'm so excited to try it, but it's amazing. The quiz that you put together, it's very thorough. I was impressed. I was like, wow, they really, it's not like a five questionnaire of like, what problems do you want to solve on your skin? It's like, what kind of climate do you live in? How much water intake do you do daily? What's your sleep habits? Are you stressed? What's your sun exposure? Even your screen time, you asked about even just screen time on computer, laptop, you're like your cell phone, your mm-hmm. the TV. I mean, it's fascinating how deep you dig in that quiz to personalize the product. You guys go so deep. And, you know, how did you guys kind of come up with all of these questions to ask and how they're relevant? Absolutely. In fact, so much is on the back end that, you know, we don't bother the consumer with that we go even deeper on the back end in terms of figuring out what's right for the consumer based on our skin genome quiz. So, so how we diagnose our customers and how we personalize products for them is that we simulate how a dermatologist would evaluate a patient who is sitting in front of them. So if this, you know, what questions would this dermatologist be asking that patient, what what they're looking for when they're looking at their skin to evaluate this patient's skin. We worked with one of our advisors was the head of dermatology at Stanford University at the time when we worked with him to develop our dermatological approach and our skin genome quiz. And it's since then been refined with additional leading skin scientists and dermatologists. So the quiz itself simulates a dermatologist evaluation. And then on the back end, from a data perspective, we also pull in dozens of real life, real time factors. So one question we do ask is your zip code. You know, from your zip code, we are pulling in dozens of facts about your exposure to the sun, your UV index, your pollution index, what type of pollution you're you're experiencing, the amount of dryness in the air versus humidity, et cetera. And we're evaluating all of those for your products. And what's truly unprecedented is that as the seasons change, you know, also as your life changes, we will update those products. So from, you know, spring to summer to winter, the formulations you're getting may not be the same because we're basically looking at for this time or for this upcoming couple of months in your life, what do you need? And we will give you exactly what you need for that time. 
That's awesome. It's incredible. And so what were some of the, you know, first early challenges? I think you guys have been in business like five years or so now. What are some of the challenges that you faced in getting the business off the ground, maybe proving the model, proving that this is something that consumers want? What are some of the big challenges you faced in building the business? Yeah, many challenges. I think it's we've been lucky to have been in business for five years. And, you know, it feels like five years of climbing uphill. (laughs) I think that's probably anybody building a business can can attest to that. So, you know, early on, we were very lucky to have had our technology and our approach validated early on. We were part of a couple of accelerator programs that are uh, some of the top in, in, in what they do, which is to help early stage companies succeed. So we were part of the Y Combinator accelerator program. We were part of the Stanford StartX program. And you know, many of them will help introduce you to different investors. And I remember meeting one particular investor who was trying to be a friend. I think was trying, actually potentially had good intentions in telling me this. But he told me that he and a couple of other investors got together and discussed the business. And they liked parts of it. But they felt that, you know, for the CEO and founder, you know, me, the CEO, of a beauty business, and especially a female CEO, that I needed to be a, a lot more demure and gentle than I was. <laughs> that I was what? seeming a little <laughs> more gentle. A little bit, that's right. And demure, demure. <laughs> what do they mean by uh, that? They meant soft-spoken. They meant <laughs> probably. That is crazy. Uh, <laughs> I feel like you can't fundraise a penny if you're that way. Like no investor right. will take you serious. Seriously. And he actually gave me an example of this, you know, more established beauty company CEO, you know, who was a beautiful influencer. And, you know, it was like, oh, she's very demure and gentle. You should be like her. And I was like, I met her from Y Combinator. She is not demure or gentle at all. She's a CEO and she is a, you know, she is a boss. (laughs) Why did they think that she was so soft if she wasn't? That's weird. Like you guys had totally Uh, different perspectives of her. Well, I'm not going to try to project what, what could have been, you know, the thing that she was doing right versus not. But so that, you know, as like a, you know, a female founder, right. It's kind of like when I was pulled aside in my finance job and told to wait until everybody else asked questions before I asked questions. It was the same way. Like, you know, <laughs> I'm a female, therefore I need to be all gentle and soft and maybe right. subservient. You know, right. maybe I should be pouring tea for everybody when they get in, whereas all the male founders and just go and, you know, uh, shout their, their their heads off with whatever promises they were making. So that that Hilarious. was a wake-up call. <laughs> it reminds me of the on. time I was told that I don't take feedback well. And it wasn't, you know, it's not that I don't listen. It's that I just didn't agree <laughs> what they were saying. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it was just really him saying to me, like, <laughs> shut up when I talk to you. It's basically what he was trying to tell me. Like, I don't want to hear what you have to say. So you just don't take my feedback well. And I'm like, dude, your feedback sucks. That's why, you know, mm-hmm. I'm just thinking to myself, like, yeah, your feedback isn't worth it. You know, I have so much pushback against what your opinions are just because I'm sharing my opinions doesn't mean I don't take feedback, right? Like I'm listening and I understand what you're saying, but I don't agree with you and I'm allowed to have my own opinion. But I found it interesting that the way it was framed was you don't take feedback very well. Yeah. What a, what a catch 22 of feedback giving, right? It's like, you don't, you don't take feedback well. And you don't listen well when I guess everything I'm saying would be more right than you or yeah, that's such a, like, what does that even mean? <laughs> you don't right, take feedback right. well. It's like, okay. No, I remember. It's because I'm not being quiet enough for you. Is that what it is? Right. <laughs> I remember listening to Lady Gaga talk about, you know, what somebody asked her, like, you know, what piece of advice would you give your younger self, right? Younger, vulnerable, young female self. And she was like, I wouldn't give her any advice because if I did, I wouldn't be who I am today. I really admire her for that. Yeah. It's funny, I was having dinner with a few female founder friends last night. And one of the women, she's a COO of this like metaverse company, and she's got these male co-founders. And I guess one of them who's on the finance side was saying something about like, well, she was asking for something from him, like, hey, can you send me, you know, whatever information that yeah, that is under his umbrella? And he, instead mm-hmm. of saying, yeah, sure, I'll get that over to you. He says, why? Like literally asked her why. And so she tries to explain to him like, well, I need it because I'm COO and this is, it's like part of my job to blah, 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 you know, kind of her reason. And it's like, 
I mean, this is supposed to be your co-founder and your partner and he's questioning what you need. Clearly doesn't understand, I guess, what your role is and you're what you need. And maybe he's just, I think it just comes from fear. Like, I think a lot of this just comes from, he probably doesn't know what the hell she's even asking for, probably doesn't have it and doesn't know how to provide it. And instead of saying, hey, I don't know what that is. <laughs> Can you mm. help me? He's like hiding and saying, why do you need that? Like, and oh, and he was saying, don't you trust that I have it? Like I have it, but why do you need <laughs> it? We have it. So you should just trust that I have it. And it's like, yo, dude, what, are the, what about transparency here? Like, what are you even talking about? But anyways, I think I find it really funny sometimes the dynamics between men and women in the workplace, especially in the... Mm-hmm. That's a big topic. I mean, yeah, uh, we can we can have a combo just about that. Maybe, maybe another one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we could go on and on. But let's go back to so you're you know you have these interesting investor conversations, which I think many people have had, and you are part of Y Combinator. I know you are also on Shark Tank. Can you tell us a little bit about your Shark Tank experience, and we can dive into some other fundraising like, um, experiences as well? Yeah, you know, actually. For another early, I guess, obstacle yeah. we had to overcome was that so shortly after getting accepted into Y Combinator, you know, we were waiting for the program to start. My co-founder, you know, Dr. Amy Yuan and I both realized that we are pregnant independently. You know, <laughs> it's not like we're <laughs> sister wives or anything. We uh, independently became pregnant. And so we went to have this conversation with our partner who was very supportive at Y Combinator, so like our our mentor in the program. And, you know, he was like, you know, are you wanting to at this time make a statement or are you wanting to, you know, fully devote the program to starting the company? Because when you're on stage on, on what is called demo day, which is the day that sort of the yeah, the like startups are unveiled. That's right. Pitch yeah. day unveiled to the world like a debutante, you know, coming out ball. You would both be, you know, seven months pregnant, visibly pregnant and presenting on stage in front of hundreds of, you know, older, mostly male investors. Right. And is that the image that you're trying to project and therefore making a statement about something? Or are you trying to basically get your company off the ground? And we were like, you know, we you have to choose we between the two. That's right. <laughs> but you know, but but it's true because of all of the things that you know we have to deal with as as founders, right? You know, yeah. founding a company is not easy for anybody, male, female, it doesn't matter. Right. Minority, non-minority, right? So to have another sort of what is considered by VCs to be another handicap, which is, right. you know, not only am I not demure, all right, and gentle enough for their preferences, you know, we're also pregnant and going to be mothers, right? That's another handicap. So another sort of thing that is off that gives them less confidence in investing in us. So right. we chose to maximize the chances for our business to succeed, which meant that we delayed Y Combinator to after we were pregnant. So though, you know, we were, we had newborns, but nobody needed to be the wiser about the fact that we had these handicaps of, you know, of babies and our handicap of being, being mothers. And so during the program, you know, we were, Amy and I were both have newborns that were a couple of months old. So we would, you know, go to the Y Combinator's offices with our gigantic apparatuses of, of milk pumps and all of their office office rooms were glass. There was like nowhere to pump. So we had to squeeze into these bathroom stalls, try to pump milk. One time I forgot the specific special bottle that attaches to the milk apparatus. So I had to find these coffee cups and then pump breast milk into the coffee cup. And I was running around with these coffee cups full of breast milk, trying to find my mentor to talk about my startup. Oh my God. All right. Well, thank God you guys had each other, right? Instead of just yes. by yourself, one of you by yourself, that wouldn't be very fun. Right. And I've heard that they changed the glasses, the glass offices. So there's no longer glass. So maybe we did, we did make some impact with our statement there. That is hilarious. And so how do you feel about that decision looking back? and delaying that demo day. Do you sometimes wish you would have just gone on stage and done it anyways, pregnant? Or do you feel like it was, I mean, you know, probably I think the best there's a the time, but. 
there is a time and a place to do certain things. You know, yeah. we definitely knew we wanted to make a statement, but that wasn't the time. You know, before the company is successful, that is not the time to try to make a statement. When we want to make a statement is, you know, we have an established successful company. We're established founders, you know, of a company. And here's our story and what we had to go through so that hopefully, you know, other women who come after us don't have to deal with what we have had to deal with. Yeah. I think that's how we best make this statement so that it has the maximum impact. Mm. So you guys were like, we'll delay this, but this is just going to be part of the good story that we're going to have that we're going to tell. When <laughs> that's, we're right. Successful. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, at the time we weren't thinking that at the time we were just trying to do whatever we could to make the startup successful. But you know, like when, when we found out we were pregnant, we know we taught, we had some honest conversations with friends who had built startups male and female. And, you know, they all express how difficult it is, right? They, you know, some of them counseled us to choose one or the other. We were stupid enough to not choose, right? We were like, you know, we, we think we can do it, or at least we're going to try. And that is what I'm really grateful that we were so obdurate, or we were so stubborn that we didn't say, okay, well, you know, let, let me not have the baby now, or let, let me not have the startup now. We, we chose to go forward with both things that we cared about a lot and that we wanted in life. And we don't regret that at all. Absolutely. Amazing. So among the other challenges, I know you are on Shark Tank. What was, how did that go? Let's talk about that. I know that you had some original comments, I think from some of the sharks and then all of a sudden they saw the product and they're like, oh, <laughs> so tell us about your experience on Shark Tank and then yeah. get into the product a little more. Absolutely. So when we were coming out of the Y Combinator program, we had an article go live in, in TechCrunch that was talking about how innovative our technology was and that we were applying it for the first time into the skincare and beauty world. So, you know, for the first time, AI technology, award-winning AI technology, and now patented technology technology is a, being applied into the world of skincare and beauty to personalize skincare products for people. And, and we got actually an outreach email from Shark Tank because they were, they were like, oh, we've not seen this level of, of, of innovation in this consumer space before where we're excited to chat with you. That's but amazing. That time, How did they find out about you though? Just I think they may have read that TechCrunch article. Oh. I think that's where it came from. Okay. Yes, I presume. You know, they may have feelers in other places that, you know, that they, they go to. That's that's entirely possible. So, but at that time, we were actually just, you know, still in the R&D phases. We hadn't launched a market. And I had seen enough Shark Tank episodes to know that if, even if they reach out to you, right, regardless of how you come onto the show, if you don't have enough traction, enough revenue, they would tear you to pieces. Right. So I was like, oh, you know, I don't think we're ready now, but we would love to, you know, keep this conversation going and let you know. When we are ready. So the next year, when we had a beta under our belt and we had some initial traction, I didn't reach back out to Shark Tank. But at that time, that producer who had first reached out was already had already left the show. Oh, so, no. but she encouraged me. She, she was lovely. She encouraged me to just go into a open casting call. Which you know, had she not said that, I would have been like, "Ooh, open casting call. That sounds like it's just such a just such right. a long shot, right?" But she yeah, was like, yeah. just, just do it, you know? I, you know, I flew to one of the cities that they were having that, went through, you know, many, you know, dog and pony show, trying to, you know, explain what you do, why it's wonderful to multiple different people. Wow. And, you know, and eventually their, you know, their team was interested. So then that began a several month process of figuring out, you know, how to really express the story of proven our technology, our personalization, our personalized products correctly on TV. And our team was very small at that time. It was maybe a five-person team. And we had maybe three people, including me, working just, just for getting ready for the show. So that means, you know, our designer was helping to design, you know, the, the, the set and recording more stories of me trying to practice and, you know, evaluating legal, et cetera. And it was so much work for so long that, you know, we were very lucky to have eventually aired on Shark Tank. But between filming and airing, it was it was almost two years. Oh my gosh. And in those in those oh sorry, it was it was sorry, it was a year. But between first starting the process and airing, it was almost two years. 
And so in the middle of this, right, before we actually aired on TV, so some of the team members, because they had put in so much work, would say, hey, you know, have you heard from Shark Tank? Have you heard from Shark Tank? And every time you know, they asked this question, I would be very sad because, no, we hadn't. Uh, we hadn't oh, heard from them for a yeah. long time. So eventually they stopped asking because they saw how sad this question made me because we had put in so much work. And then in 2020, when the pandemic started, I had moved because our, our business started in San Francisco. Uh, we were based all, out there, the entire team. But then when the pandemic started, San Francisco as a city shut down the city, shut down everything, including preschools and childcare. So, you know, I was a working mother and my husband was working as well. And we had, uh, you know, at that time, a two-year-old. So we, it was an untenable situation at home. So my parents, who live in South Florida still, <laughs> were like, oh, just come home. We'll take care of your baby for you. So we moved oh, to wow. South That's Florida great. and stayed with my parents for a while. Yeah. yeah. So that was that was lucky. And then I remember in 2020, so a couple of months after having moved back home to South Florida, I get this email that was like, you're going to air on Shark Tank in two weeks. And that was like literally the whole email. <laughs> And I was like, oh my gosh. And I, you know, I tell the whole team and they're so excited, but there was so much work because, you know, Shark Tank is something that could completely explode your business in a couple of days. So we, we, we yeah. immediately went into crank mode. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. So then it aired and how'd it go? Did things just fly through the roof? Did you guys sell out? Yeah, it, it definitely was a, had a great impact on our business. So much so that for a couple of factors, Shark Tank and then, you know, the COVID supply chain issues, it basically broke our supply chain. And the partner that we had in, in doing supply chain, whom we thought we could be with for a couple of years as we, you know, slowly grew, immediately became, you know, not able to work with because they, they couldn't scale in the way that we needed to scale. So that our entire mm. team, you know, at that time, still like five or six people, three of them flew to that fulfillment center to pack boxes to ship product, including my co-founder and including our engineer. So he was not coding anymore. He was at the center packing boxes yeah. for a couple of weeks afterwards. And then we had to do the painful work of migrating to a larger 3PL. But we're lucky that we had to do that at that time, because if we hadn't done that, then we would have had to do it next year, regardless, because the business started to pick up in the following years as well. Amazing. And so now that you, you know, you've been on Shark Tank and you guys are off to the races, one thing that I think you guys have done really interesting from a fundraising perspective is you have this website where people can invest. And I invested as well. And anybody listening, Thank if you're you. inspired by Ming's story and you want to get involved and be an investor in Proven Skincare, you can go to investinproven.com. And they have this amazing, you've created this amazing like front end personalized site. And obviously the back end is from a crowd raising platform. But maybe you can talk a little bit about you know, using this platform, because I find it very interesting. A lot of people have used other platforms, you have to go to like, Republic or or some other website, but you've created your own landing mm -hmm. page to be able to invest. What yeah, was kind of the you. thought process behind that? And it, yeah, it's really well done. Coming out of some of the programs we come out of, we had raised money from top tier venture capitalists, including the likes of Social Capital, Soma Capital, you know, Stanford, StartX, SoftBank, et cetera. And, you know, that is what allowed us to get the business off the ground. But, you know, we were hearing more from our customers and our community who, uh, especially in the early days, you know, they, they were believing in improvement before there was that much to believe in. And we are so grateful to them. And, you know, many of them are, you know, smart, professional women and men. And they were like, you know, we were seeing the growth of Proven, right? In our first year, first full year in market, we actually, Proven did more than $10 million in revenue. And then the next year we doubled that. So they were like, we're seeing this tremendous growth and we are early believers. How can we get in on a piece of the company and not just yeah. the customers? And we were getting a lot of these notices from just, you know, some of our really loyal customers who have been with us for, for a while. And we were like, you know, that's, you're right, because these customers, our community is what really is driving the growth in value of Proven as a company. Why can't we give them a piece of this, you know, increase in value? So that is why we created a crowdfunding 
campaign so that many of them are able to take part in, in what they've helped to build. And what we, what we did was, um, so Obama, when he was president, created the Jobs Act. And as a part of the Jobs Act, he enacted what is called a Regulation A crowdfunding allowance, which the context for that was that, you know, he knew that so many companies, startups are, you know, invested by established venture capitalists, institutional investors, and consumers, like regular Americans can't get in on these great companies until the IPO, at which point much of the value had already been taken off the top by, by these institutional investors. Right. So he, want to, he wanted to allow a way where promising upstart companies could get money from just regular Americans earlier before the IPO. So that it's not only the institutional investors, you know, we have, we have many of them on our cap table. So it's not just them that is getting all of this value. So you know, we were lucky that they, that this program was in place. So that's what we did. We did this regulation A, we applied through it. And it's, um, you have to be approved by the SEC. You know, they double check all your numbers. We had to be audited, et cetera. And we were approved. So, you know, it's live for, it's been live for a year and a half. And we probably won't keep it open for too much longer from here. But yeah, you know, we have gotten millions of dollars in investments from just our customers and community alone. And we're so grateful to them. And we're continuing to, you know, get great support from them. You know, we, we owe the business to them in many ways, right? As both as customers, as community, and now as owners. And we're, we're so glad that we could, we could do this. If you're interested, yeah, they can go to investinproven.com, right? And just be able to invest right there. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And if there are additional questions as to how to set something like this up, I'm happy to do a little side conversation with, you know, with you, with whomever's interested with the nitty gritty. Yeah, we should maybe do an, a new episode on that because that would be awesome to be able to kind of talk about it with other aspiring entrepreneurs wanting to maybe fundraise this way because it's really beautiful what you've put together. It's so easy. I mean, the process to invest is so easy and fast and, you know, I'll get email updates and I just, I feels like the real thing and it's, it is the real thing. So Great job putting that together. And, you know, before we wrap up here, what is some final advice that you have, you know, for aspiring entrepreneurs, maybe trying to take the leap from corporate world to start their own companies, or maybe they're in the trenches right now trying to build their, their startup? I was just reflecting on this, that, you know, throughout this journey, and even now, you know, even now that we have a great business, you know, we just reached break even, which means that we don't really have to rely on external sources of you know funding, et cetera, to stay alive. And we have a business that, you know, people have heard of and that we have many customers. We, we, we've served, you know, more than 200,000 customers who love us and stay with us, et cetera. Even with all of this, but now I still am in a stage where I have no idea what I'm doing at any given time. And it certainly was true in the very beginning. I had no idea what I was doing. My co-founder had no idea what she was doing. You know, we were like, you know, in the early days we were, we basically, you know, the entire business took over my apartment, whereby husband was helping to formulate products and assemble in the living room. And then my co-founder, who was really heavily pregnant at that time, and I were putting on the labels and then sending those beta products to customers and shipping them ourselves. You know, and now, you know, we work with the leading labs for all of the products. You know, we, we didn't develop the products themselves. We were we were just the, the beta ones we mixed ourselves, but the, the rest are all made in labs. But, you know, even at that early stage and even now, we have really no idea what we're doing. And that's probably just the normal and natural state of being. So I feel like if, you know, anyone is feeling like, oh, I have no idea what I'm supposed to be doing now or if what I'm doing is right. I think that is just the way it is. There's nothing yeah. unnatural about that. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of how, so what you're saying is get used to the feeling because that's basically how it is the entire journey. <laughs> it's like, you never feel like the you know what you're journey. doing. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. You never feel like what you're, what you're, you know, what you're doing, but don't let that affect your confidence and don't let that certainly don't let that stop you from doing the things that you don't know are right, but you know, but that maybe are right. Absolutely. You know, thank you for the final advice to the aspiring entrepreneurs. I think that's great. What is next for Proven Skincare? What can we see next from you guys? What's what's on the agenda? 
Yeah, super exciting. We are about to announce the launch of a a second brand from the proven family where we're using our patented and award-winning AI technology and personalization platform to tackle the next category that is also, you know, in much need for a revolution. So stay tuned for that. We are very excited. The news will be coming out in the next couple of weeks on that. Awesome. Very cool. Well, I'm excited to hear what this next category is. And thank you so much, Ming, for joining me on the show and sharing your inspiring story. Are you still in Florida? I'm dying to know. Are you still with the parents? <laughs> yeah, I'm still in Florida. And at this point, I don't know where we'll be. You know, it's a, the world is our oyster, but it's also, it's hard to decide what place to be at. So we're, we're still in Florida. Well, I feel like, I mean, it's perfect. You can work anywhere. I mean, now is the time where you can be anywhere and, you know, build something great. So thanks so much again for your time and joining me on the show today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Lee. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.